You're listening to the Boss Level Podcast, and I'm your host, Sami Honkonen. My guest for this episode is Barry O'Reilly. I met Barry a couple of years ago when we were both keynoting the Agile Australia conference. Ever since, we've been messaging each other every now and then, trying to find a moment when we could be in the same location so we could do a face-to-face interview for the podcast. It was taking too long, so we decided to just do it remotely instead. What's especially interesting to me about Barry's experience is that he's worked a lot with large organizations. He's one of the authors of Lean Enterprise that discusses how high-performance organizations innovate at scale. He's the founder of ExecCamp, which takes executives to retreats lasting up to eight weeks and helps them disrupt their own businesses. Barry is also faculty at Singularity University and a frequent writer for The Economist. Barry has a new book coming up called Unlearn, which we'll talk about in the episode. I hope you enjoy listening to our discussion. So you write books on management, you speak at conferences, you uh, you coach executives, among other things. So uh, what's the change in the world that you want to achieve through your work? Well, my mission has always been to work with great people in great ways to achieve extraordinary results. And it's sort of a little mission that I've had uh, for a long time. And it, it helps me also identify the kind of leaders that are going to work well with me. I typically... A lot of the methods and, and tactics that I use aren't necessarily formularic. They're leaders who understand that they're going to be tackling uncertainty, which means they're going to have to get a little uncomfortable. They're going to have to try new skills. They need to be curious. Um, I think when you find a lot of management and leaders who just want to sort of paint by numbers, a framework approach, a maturity model approach to try and innovate their business, I I tend not to work so well with them because really a lot of what we're dealing with is uncertainty and complexity, which requires an experimental approach, which means we're going to have to be willing to try lots of different things to achieve the outcomes that you want. Um, And most people feel a little uncomfortable doing that, starting without knowing the perfect answer, seeing the solution perfectly defined in advance, where, you know, I tend to work into the solution by identifying problems, testing multiple options to address those problems, and then find these great solutions that are custom for the context that we're in. What were you seeing that that made you feel that I want to start working on this or or this is this is something that I want to change? I'd been on you know hundreds of transformation initiatives or innovation programs or trying to build these tiny little products inside these massive organizations that were suddenly going to innovate and change the whole culture or the whole system of the business. And really what I found uh, more and more was, although these teams, uh, cross-functional teams, they were customer-focused, work in small batches, ship product all all the time, they, they would be successful in their little part of the system but it wouldn't have a systemic impact on the organization and shift the culture or shift the mindset uh, throughout it. So I started to think more about, well, if I want to have a systemic impact in organizations, 
really I've got to focus on the nodes of the system that have the most influence on the system. And how could I create experiences for them to start to learn and reignite their curiosity again, start to remember why experimentation is really powerful for them because it helps them make better decisions. And, and most executives that I work with are interested in making great decisions. Uh, the challenge they have is a lot of the data they get is sanitized or corrected as it's moved up to them. So often they're making decisions in the business based on poor information, sanitized information, corrected information, which isn't actually the truth. So really I wanted to show them ways about how they could get the data they want you know, see things like their strategy as a hypothesis, see employees as their customers of the systems of work they're building for their uh, internal processes, and then start to experiment, like start to test these hypotheses with real experiments to get better data to make great decisions. And, you know, a lot of it is very uncomfortable for them initially because they're learning that strategies that they thought were correct are actually invalid or they're learning that systems that they designed don't actually operate the way that they expect. What I find when you work with them for a period of time is they, they stop starting to blame individuals or people for why things go wrong. They start to recognize that it's actually the system that's incorrect and people are just trapped in a bad system. So one of the things that I want to want to focus on a little bit uh, or ask a little more about is that you mentioned decision making and and one of the structures that's preventing large or especially large organizations uh, and changing their operations and processes and policies is the decision making and and most of those decision making structures are actually based on a hierarchy. So what's your opinion? How should large organizations change the way that they make decisions, uh, but then again without introducing too much risk? One of my favorite books is uh, Turn the Ship Around by David Marquet. You know, and David was the captain of the worst performing submarine in the U uh, U.S. fleet. And um, what he found is that when you work in that system, the captain had to make every decision, right? If they had to move a boat uh, to, into an attacking position, he'd have to tell the person to turn the rudder left, go up, go down. And there's all these decisions that had to go all the way up to him to make. And what he really wanted to do was start pushing the decision-making authority to the people closest to the information. And the way he would help them make good decisions is it was his job to give intent. What's the purpose of what we're trying to achieve? And then trust people closest to their job and the work they have to do to contribute to that to make a good decision. So he started like changing the way he would ask questions. He said he was never going to make any more decisions apart from one decision, which was to launch um, missiles, because that could result in loss of human life. But every other decision he said he wasn't going to ask. He was going to give people intent and then ask them what they thought they should start to do. So he started to build up this capability where people were confident to make decisions and he could start to see that they had the capability to make those decisions. And that allowed him to sort of start to relinquish this sort of um, command and push control down to the people who needed it. So if I was to summarize that, basically you were saying two things. You were saying that you think it's it's a good idea to push decision-making to the people with the best information related to that decision. And it's a good idea to break decisions into smaller bits by by breaking them into experiments. And like, if we talk a little more about the, uh, like pushing decision-making to the people with the with the best information, 
one of the things that that I've been thinking about a lot uh, recently is is related to like who are all the people that need to be involved uh, when making a uh, making a decision because you need the best expert. So who's who's like the best uh, expert on the topic that we're discussing? Then you'd probably need uh, kind of like who has the best big picture, like who knows what what's relevant here, who knows what the impacts are to the whole organization, to our customers. And then third, I think one important thing is to include people uh, who are going to be influenced by that decision. So like what's going to happen after that decision and and like who's going to kind of see uh, the, the results of that decision? Because they, they also probably have a strong opinion on, on how, like what should be decided. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think I think you've described like a, a lot of the characteristics that are important to make great teams and also take people on a journey to deliver something that's generally complex, either right, a product or a service. And I think when any people uh, are left out, um, it generally leads to friction. Uh, and when too many people are involved, it it generally leads to glacial movement. Now and um, so, you know, I, one example I can think of is uh, another one of the leadership teams of a bank I, I coach here in America. You know, they, they had this challenge with everything was decision by committee. And therefore, to try and get anything done, we could never actually move anywhere because we had to coordinate these 40 to 45 people, everyone who would want to have an opinion, everybody who would find a really difficult edge case scenario. They're smart people, so they're thinking about the, you know, all these really complicated ways about how these systems could go wrong. Um, the head of governance, risk, and compliance was a very interesting character. The way he wanted to work with teams is he thought about his team as you know, thinking like a set of traffic lights. And ultimately, you know, you have, a, you have a, a place you are and a destination you want to go to on a highway. And he would always envisage that how could he create systems where every light was green and there was monitoring aspects in place to see, are you going at the right speed? Are there different things happening that could cause you to hit your vehicle? And if that was the case, fire off these warnings and, and then stop. Um, but it, it started to give us this sort of principle to say, you know, if we're going to move fast, we need to create these small cross-functional teams that represent a lot of these constituents that you you mentioned, right? Someone who has a big picture, someone who can see the detail, someone who's going to roll out this and operate it when, it, when it's done. Um, but when you create these small teams and so they can move fast, there's a huge amount of accountability on them to recognize not only when they need to reach out and bring people in, uh, to be when they can be involved, and um, but also the people who are supporting them to recognize that their job is to help people move, make progress rather than stop them at every light. Um, so it's actually about simplifying these things down, doing very small things frequently end to end, and then starting to scale the product rather than trying to involve everybody, think about every edge case scenario, ensure that we are 100% resilient before we ever go live, um, and that's what takes things so long to be delivered. So uh, let's talk a little about uh, experimentation and, and building a culture of experimentation, because I think I think that's something that you and me both uh, see as something that's very valuable for for organizations. So 
from what I've understood, you've actually worked with with some of the largest organizations in the U.S. So it's kind of really interesting to hear your opinions on like how how do big big uh, corporations get started in in building a culture of experimentation, especially when you're trying to talk to senior executives in in large organizations. You know, the the thing I try to help them understand and and lead with is we want to get better information to make better decisions, right? Because they're always interested in that. And the mechanism of how we do that through experimentation, it's important. But I think it's it's always important to focus on what what's the actual outcomes we're aiming for. And the outcomes we are aiming for is better information, better decisions, better performance. And, and the way we do that is by testing what we believe to be true and finding out what works and what doesn't. So my first tip is always, you know, lead, lead with the what you will do and then start to explain to them how we're going to do it. Because when we just say, uh, yeah, we're going to experiment, we're going to try loads of things, to them it can often feel difficult to interpret and um, chaotic in many ways. Then, then the next thing is, I talked a little bit about this idea of um, mean time to mental model break. This is one of my key metrics. And um, our, our, how I often say it is, um, I often think my job is to safely break people's mental models of the world so they understand what's actually happening versus what they think is happening. Uh, and the way I try to do that is to create these very simple but safe little experiments to give these leaders new insights that they didn't have before. And the benefit of that is they start to see the value of the how. So once you've explained the what you're trying to do, better decisions, better data, better results, then we start to figure out how do you do that? Well, we experiment, we test some of our hypotheses. And um, one of the examples uh, uh, I would share is I coached this, um, uh, let's just say they're a really well-known phone company. And um, the executive group had built, they, they're all been in the industry for like 20 years. They had designed this perfect strategy for rolling out the new phone sales so that any customer you know, could get onboarded in their system within two hours. And they were delighted with it. They thought it was perfect. It was, per, you know, it, it was well designed or couldn't have any issues with this. And um, so what I was trying to say to them is, well, this strategy and this rollout is a hypothesis, so, so we should test it. So what, what I did is design a real small experiment. I got um, five $200 prepaid credit cards. I gave all the executives um, two hours to go out and sign up to their own service and, and see that they could do it. Oh. Right. So, so how do you think they got on? <laughs> they couldn't. <laughs> right. So one out of the five was able to sign up. Uh, another one nearly did it within the time, but but three three couldn't. And, That's awesome. And, and again, so it was it was by learning by doing, right? By yeah. getting them to be customers of their own systems. And it's kind of and then, it's, it's kind of crazy sorry. when you think about it that kind of that you had to push them to to do that. Uh, and and I think uh, it it like when you say it like this, it seems pretty crazy that they've not done that. But then again, I think it's very understandable. I think this is probably very very common that you just. You just kind of assume that, of course, like I, I don't need to use my own product. I know what the product is, and I know how it works. That I don't, I don't need to use it. Whereas actually tr trying, trying it out, like you just explained, can can be very eye opening. <laughs> Absolutely right, and 
and but it's a safe for them to fail, right? It's like they're they're not doing this in front of the entire organization. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's a two hour test. They're just going out, and you know, they all had different uh, failure points, right? It's a complex system they're trying to build. Some people struggled, you know, to get the card to even work. Some people struggled to onboard to the policy that they want because it didn't, you know, there was, but again, when they didn't get angry at the people who were serving them and more focused on, well, there's a problem with the system we've designed. The power of that then is that they start to see that these, all these little mistakes are just signals from their system saying things aren't operating as you think they are. Let's fix it. And once you sort of get into that mindset, um, it becomes very, very powerful because you start to see everything as a hypothesis with a set of assumptions to be tested. And, you know, all those executives then go on to become these great experimenters because it reignites their curiosity. It, it, it makes them start to think about, well, what, what assumptions have to be true in order for this to work? So let's test those and make sure they're operating as we expect. Um, and then they're building these more resilient, responsive systems. And ultimately, that leads to better customer outcomes and better success for them. So it's sort of taking people through this process of sort of unlearning a lot of their existing mindsets and behaviors, relearning these new skills to get the breakthroughs they're looking for. And that's what sort of leads these people to higher performance and, and great results. I think one of the things that you also talk about quite a lot is how to change people's mindset. And I think what actually that we kind of agree on on that topic is that you hear a lot of talk about how, like, if you want to change organizations, that you should change thinking, which obviously is true. But the kind of what I what I feel the problem is, is that changing like someone else's thinking is actually pretty hard. <laughs> you can't really do that. But what you can do instead is you can you can help them act differently. You can help them do something which will then uh, like they, it, it will change their thinking when when they act differently. Do, they do something differently, and then they see results from from doing something differently. So actually, uh, if you want to change thinking, the best way to do that is to help them try something. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. You know, I think. Um... And this is one of the big problems we see, right? Um, people think to act differently, you got to think differently. And especially because Apple had that commercial, which is like, think differently. Everyone's suddenly like, yeah, you know, I, we just need to think differently and then we're going to innovate. Um, and, and I go into so many companies and, you know, I often hear that we have a mindset problem here. We need to shift our mindset. And, uh, you know, the, again, I, as I agree with you, if you want to shift people's mindset, you don't get them to think differently. They have to act differently, um, which means they have to behave differently. And so really, like a lot of what I'm always trying to help people do is introduce tiny new behaviors into their existing routines, because um, performing a new behavior, that actually changes your perspective when you see a different result. Um, and by seeing a different result from using a new behavior, that actually starts to impact your mental model or shift your mindset. And then as your mindset starts to shift from performing new behaviors, it encourages you to keep trying new behaviors. So you create this virtuous loop where people are constantly experimenting with behavior, yet still people anchor to this idea that if you want to think differently, you know, you just need new information. Um, but I see that fail all the time, right? People sit in two-day Scrum certification courses um, and be and be told new information, 
and then expect on the third day that people were going to go out and magically change their behavior. And I don't see that, unfortunately. You need to deliberately practice these new behaviors, these new practices. And then by practicing these, deliberately practicing these new behaviors, you start to see different results from those behaviors. And that's what encourages you then to shift your mindset because you're getting new information that's going against your existing mental models. Um, and that's how you get there. Behave differently, change your perspective to shift your mindset and then keep, keep uh, that cycle going. Yeah, and, and actually an, another interesting aspect on this whole thing is like if 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 we're hoping to change behavior and, and if we've uh, if our opinion is that uh, that by changing behavior we can change thinking, one of the issues that we often have is that we start changing behaviors and, and we start expecting different behavior from people in the organization, but we don't change the structures. So, for example, we have structures that, um, let's say, incentivize people to like work on their individual goals. But then we have a, an off-site session where we talk about the importance of teamwork and how we need to behave differently to start doing more teamwork. And I think that's one of the things that kind of, it feels even worse when when that's like or everything feels even worse when you're like you're saying one thing you're saying that teamwork is important and you're saying that we need to behave this way but then when you actually look at the structures within the company and they reward reward let's say individual performance you're like what the fuck is this <laughs> oh it's funny yeah so i think um Yeah, I have another good example of the, this exact story. You know, I was, I was working uh, with another financial institution in Europe and the leadership team had invited me along to their like two day, their their uh, strategy offsite, you know, and, and they were they were talking about how the organization needed to grow, how they you know needed to have better collaboration. And they were sort of like everyone did their presentation about how their business unit was like global markets was doing great. Financial uh, trading was doing great. Uh, retail banking was doing great. Everybody was just selling their great story. And yet the bank as a whole was struggling, you know, and uh, we sort of sat through this presentation for, I'd say, about like 90 minutes. Uh, and then just in the last 30 minutes of the, of the session, Uh, everything sort of changed because so, somebody was talking about this idea of the one bank and how, how do we be successful? And then um, the head of strategy um, just goes, well, the reason we're struggling is because we're all incentivized to make our bank work, our, our portion, our department work. So we're actually competing against one another constantly, uh, locally optimizing for ourselves. And, and you know, it was a great moment to be in there to see somebody speak up like that because it shifted the whole uh, approach of, of everybody in the room. Um, you know, they actually made it safe for other people to recognize that, that because they were locally optimized, it was very difficult for them to achieve a strategic initiative for the entire bank because everybody was working on their, the thing that would make them successful, achieve their bonus and, and so forth. So you have to be very deliberate about how you design your incentive structures and make sure that they're communicating what behaviors you want to see. Because if you if you performance manage individuals, you'll get individualistic behavior. If you performance manage teams, you'll have more of a team approach if you and so on and so forth. 
And um, I also know you've had Bent Holstrom on the show as well. Uh, so other listeners, I'd highly recommend. Actually, it's a great um, podcast that you you both did a while ago. I think to, uh, on incentives, and you know, like I think that was just a great way where he was describing um, some of the behaviours that you would see. Um, the the classic example at the moment is, I think, the Wells Fargo Group, where people had a very strong incentive to just open new accounts. That's how they would measure success for their products if people open new accounts. And it was an easy to measure thing at a local level that drove people with a strong incentive that drove people then to start creating bogus accounts and ultimately had massive financial repercussions for the largest fine I think a bank has ever had in the US and Wells Fargo, but it's also a massive impact on their brand, which is a much harder to, uh, financial quantification uh, thing to, to actually, you know, yeah, yeah. understand. So su- super interesting. And again, trying to get people to think more about the metrics and the, out- the incentives you communicate lead to the behaviors you'll drive. So you need to be very deliberate about how you design them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, someone commented on the Bengt Holmström episode that in that episode I got schooled. <laughs> I love that. But anyway, um, well, and he, he's won the Nobel Prize, so I, you know I don't think you have to be too upset about that. <laughs> no, no, I'm not at all. That's it, it was awesome. Uh, I learned a lot from that discussion, and, and I think that's like one of the the main ideas of having this podcast is talking to people who are smarter than me and who know more about me and then, then saying things out loud and then they tell me when I'm wrong. It's, it's, <laughs> it's a great way to learn. Yeah, yeah <laughs> oh, it's 100%. So we already talked about how, how behavior is also driven by the structures or the, like, for example, the incentive structure that, that we have. And that's actually one of the reasons why I think that If we actually want to get long-term changes in people's behavior, we have to be able to change the structures eventually, because otherwise they will always kind of override whatever discussions we have or whatever like offsites where we do, where we fall to the ground and people like catch you or whatever, whatever you decide to do, like it doesn't really help if the structures don't change. So that's why I think that like most often when we talk about experiments, we talk about doing experiments in the context of like building new digital services or something. And we need to go to the customers and talk to them about about like uh, our idea. But also like we should do experiments when we're developing our organization. And when we're doing experiments within our organization to develop our organization, I think we should always keep in mind that eventually those experiments should lead to changes in the structures of the company. Possibly we could maybe get rid of some structures, or if we can't get rid of them, we should try to change them, because those are eventually, those are the things that will have the biggest impact on the performance of, or or the behavior of the people in the organization. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, like I, I, I agree. Um, another example um, is I work with a, a really well-known um, trading fund here in, in the U.S. 
you know, the executive team were constantly trying to innovate their business. They're constantly under attack now from lots of startups here in Silicon Valley who are creating these apps to help people start to manage their uh, investments, make small funds. And the executive team are like really struggling to make decisions because they don't know what products they need to build. They're trying to find or get innovation happening in their organization. So I was working with their executive team. We set up this sort of portfolio program where they invited people across the company to come up with different ideas. They would do sort of like a shark tank uh, scenario. So people would come in, pitch their ideas to the executive team. Any ideas that they like, they, they would give them a small uh, limit funding, right? So again, trying to teach them to get away from these big annual funding processes, but teach them to make smaller bets on ideas and see what works. So, so they start to learn these new behaviors, these new structures, but it's in a safe to fail way. Because, you know, if, if, if this little initiative doesn't work, they haven't applied it across their entire portfolio of initiatives. They're, they're just doing it here. But they're learning these new behaviors. They're seeing a new perspective. And that's what shifts their mindset. And then other things like the CEO, how they were responding to the information they were getting back to say that, you know, the idea that they thought to innovate their entire business actually sucked and nobody wanted it. So, again, there's another structure of like information coming from the front line directly unsanitized to the CEO, enabling them both to make good decisions based on real information. Again, changing the structure about how information is shared in the organization. It's not a 25 page PowerPoint report. It's the teams coming and showing evidence of prototypes that they've created, information that they've learned from their experiments. It's a totally different structure of way of interacting. So I think it's trying to show people that there's a real deliberate strategic approach to doing change, to doing new structure design. Because we're not just experimenting with products, as you said. We're experimenting with processes. We're experimenting with new behaviors. We're experimenting with new tools and techniques to try and find out what's the most optimal ones for the context we're in. And again, that goes back to this idea that what we're doing is not formularic. It's not a paint-by-numbers approach. We're experimenting at multiple levels here to find out what works best in your context. And then you create a system optimized for yourself. It's not a one-page document to say, if you follow all these practices, you will suddenly be an amazing technology organization, you're building your own. Just like Toyota's production system is very unique to Toyota. They're constantly adapting it. You know, when they would invite the GM uh, people in to look around their offices and take photos of, of the way that they were working, the GM thought that Toyota were mad. But again, Toyota realized that you can't copy the capabilities that they had created through this ritual of daily experimentation at all levels. So and, and, you know, this is the sort of stuff that I think um, when you're really seeking to create unique cultures and higher performing cultures and adaptive cultures is that you have to build this culture of experimentation, of learning into everything that you do. Um, and that's what's going to be unique and give you a differentiator and competitive advantage. Great. Let's spend a couple of minutes on, on your upcoming book. So you have a book coming up that's going to be called Unlearn. And in the book, you introduce the cycle of unlearning. So can you just briefly walk me through that? What's the cycle of unlearning? You know, I think you and I would both have a shared assumption that 
we have to continuously learn. We're, we're in an environment now where we have to continuously learn new things, especially in technology. New technology comes along, you need to, to learn it. But what I found was learning new things was not the limiting factor in higher performance. It, it was actually unlearning existing behavior that and models and methods that had made people successful in the past, and they were still applying those same methods and models in the future, actually to every problem they came up against. And they weren't as effective. So it was therefore limiting performance. So I sort of got to this uh, concept that really what we need to do is not only learn, but also unlearn existing behavior to make space for new information to come in. And the way I sort of define unlearning is it's a process of letting go or reframing or moving away from once useful mindsets and behaviors that were effective in the past, but now limit our success. So it's not forgetting, removing or discarding knowledge or experience. And it's a conscious act of letting go of outdated information and actively engaging and taking in new information to inform decision making and action. And, you know, the way the way I sort of think a little bit about it as an analogy, you know, imagine, you know, you are a piece of software, you know, your, your mental model, the way you operate. So if you're not constantly updating your software, your human operating model, you know, ultimately you're going to become disrupted. You know, companies don't get disrupted. It's the individuals that lead them because they don't adapt to the context. So that's really what inspired me to write the book. And by coaching these executives and leaders through this process of first trying to recognize you know, something that they were trying, an outcome or aspiration they were trying to achieve, but struggling to do it, something that worked before suddenly wasn't, they weren't achieving the outcomes that they wanted. That's normally a signal that you need to unlearn, that the behaviors that you're using are not taking you to the desired direction or results that you want. So you need courage to call that out, that, it's, that what you're doing is not working. And then relearn is really about experimenting with different behaviors, trying lots of different options to see if you use a new behavior, does it take you to the desired outcome or result that you want? Um, And by experimenting and relearning these new behaviors, ultimately that leads to breakthroughs in thinking and insight and action. So would I be correct in saying that when you say unlearn, what you mean is consciously identifying what's obsolete? Absolutely. Or consciously uh, identifying that what you're doing is not working. Yeah. So you're accountable to yourself about recognizing that the behaviors I'm trying are not effective. Yeah. And that requires humility. It requires curiosity. And then it requires you being getting uncomfortable. Um, and again, what I find is that when you can get people into that state, you know, they're the people who I think can really propel themselves to extraordinary results. They strive for excellence rather than perfection. And I think that's a really powerful trait in, in these great leaders. Thanks for listening. If you want to know more about Barry and his work, check out the show notes and pre-order Barry's new book, Unlearn. If you like the episode, shares on social media are appreciated as always. Sorry for the longer pause between this and the previous episode. I hope I can get the next one out quicker. Until next time, bye. Bye.